Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Today, we continue our look back at National Lutheran Schools Week. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you back for our final uh, installment of our National Lutheran Schools Week uh, speaker series. Uh, for those of you who uh, were unable to join us earlier in the week, I just want to remind you that our theme this week has been in all things. And uh, as such, that theme uh, in all things comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So we read that on Monday, um, but uh, I would encourage you uh, again to take up those passages um, and, and read those, those verses. Uh, as I mentioned, this is our final day of our National Lutheran Schools Week uh, speaker series, and I am honored to introduce to you uh, Reverend Sean Denzer. Uh, Pastor Denzer serves as director of LCMS Worship, and his work has blessed countless families. Uh, I know my family is among those uh, who have uh, been blessed, and I'm sure uh, that you guys, uh, many of you have been as well. Today, Pastor Denzer is going to speak to us about the three categories of song in the church, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a familiar phrase, right? Uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, and uh, you always want to follow it with, with gratitude in your hearts to God, right? Uh, so all of, all of these sorts of things. Um, and how each of these things uh, bless us, especially in the setting of schools, uh, such as Wittenberg Academy and other Lutheran schools uh, around the country, and that this is our heritage. Uh, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled that we get to uh, sit at Pastor Denzer's feet and learn from him. So without further ado, um, and make sure that you uh, take down your questions as uh, Pastor Denzer is speaking, uh, because he will certainly uh, allow a time of, of questions uh, as, as, as we have time. So uh, without further ado, Pastor Denzer, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, scholars, for allowing me to address you today. We'll start uh, with the scriptures, as we ought to. Um, and it's great that we have this connection with uh, the theme for this year in all things from the beginning of Colossians that we can bring in the end of Colossians, or at least halfway through chapter 3. And it's so important to remember the whole sentence uh, from that theme, I think. Uh, it's easy to forget the end of it, which is the most important part, that Christ would be preeminent in all things, is what the passage is. Uh, and that's perfect for exactly the topic that we're talking about today with music in the church, with song in the church, uh, that Christ would be preeminent in everything we do. That means both that Christ would be the first thing we approach when we ask the question of, are we going to use music and how are we going to use music? but also that in that music itself, that Christ would be the one that is being proclaimed, uh, that he would be the focus of it and not ourselves. So we want to look at Colossians chapter 3, particularly verse 15, which uh, uh, a Teacher Benson has already started to, to say for us. It's a following up on life itself. Uh, we've just heard 
uh, about all of us and our relation to one another, that we're to uh, be servants of one another, that we're to put off our old self, that we're to put off all the sinful nature and instead be clothed in Christ Jesus and all the benefits that he gives. But also uh, that uh, coming up on the part we're not going to hear about wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children, slaves and their masters. It's the whole table of duties, as you know well from the catechism. But music is kind of like the glue holding these two things together, our life together in general and our life together in these specific vocations. So here's uh, uh, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And here's our key verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We'll include 17 as well. And whatever you do, there's that all things again, do in, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, this passage shows us in particular how we as Christians are to use music, what songs in the church are for of any type, and that is that the word of Christ would be dwelling in us. Uh, the Lutheran fathers made a lot out of that word dwell in Latin. They were working with habebit that this ought to, ought to be constantly living with us. And that's quite a different thing than a cursory read. It's quite a different thing than kind of, well, it's there if I need to grab it off the shelf, but it's that it would live and dwell right in us. The, the word there uh, has some ambiguity in Greek, enhumin, can be either in us, as in like dwelling within our hearts by faith, that would make great sense, but it also has the sense of among y'all, because it's a plural verb, right? Or plural uh, uh, adjective there. Um, it's not just that it's in me and who cares what anybody else is doing, but that it is also among us as Christians. And here I would say that that ambiguity is just fine. We, we want to see both of those as absolutely true. And, and the fact that Paul has brought music into this makes it very clear to us that he's no longer talking about something silent. It's easy for us in the modern times when we read so often without ever making a sound out of our lips to think that the activity of knowing, learning, reading, thinking all happens in the mind, all happens in the heart, all happens silently. Uh, but that's not the way that the, the ancient world thought at all. And it's not the way the scriptures think. They think out loud. Uh, so many of the words for speaking, for knowing, and for confessing are always out loud words. Even prayer is not intended to be silent. And so now that we have the music words, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs being used, it's abundantly clear to us that this is an out loud activity. The word of Christ doesn't just dwell in us individually, silently, in our minds, memories, or hearts, but that it is dwelling among us in singing, in praising, in confessing, in exhorting one another, in teaching one another, in putting it into us. So that's all what's going on in this First Corinthians passage, or Colossians passage, excuse me. Now, I want to go um, probably, oh, 50 years at the most after the time when Paul wrote this, to another person that you may know, Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, sometimes we call him Plinius Minor, Pliny the Younger. His father died in the Vesuvius explosion, right, with the volcano, because he was curious. Uh, but his son, or his, his nephew, right, uh, uh, he uh, was in a position of power, and he wrote to the emperor Trajan about all sorts of uh, business matters when you're ruling. Uh, but in particular, he wrote this one letter that's become so famous because it's about Christians. 
What do you do with these Christians? Uh, he said he took a kind of relaxed position against them. He only tortured the women and the children uh, to see if they would deny Christ and to find out what they believed. Can you imagine that? That was the lighter approach in his mind. Uh, and, and in general, he didn't want to bother with the Christians. He thought we were kind of just annoying and superstitious and weird. Uh, but, but nevertheless, it was illegal. So he wasn't supposed to be doing that. Uh, so, so he asked, what do I do? And in the process, he tells us a great source outside of the Bible early on, within 100 years of Christ, within uh, his death, uh, within 50 years of St. Paul and his work, probably within just a few years of John's death, uh, what the Christians were doing, what they were known for. And we get a wonderful description uh, that has to do with singing. Here's what he says, uh, that the only crime that the people were doing that he could see that they were guilty of was this, quote, essent soliti stato die ante lucem convenire, carmenque Christo quasi deo dicere secum in weekem. What does this mean? It means that they were accustomed uh, on a fixed day uh, before the light of dawn, to gather together, and to sing songs to Christ as if to God. And that they did this secum in weekem, which means uh, with themselves, back and forth. Uh, we would say, and many translations put it, responsively, that one person would sing to the other, and they would go back and forth as they sang. So that's a fantastic little brief description that tells us a few things important. One, Christians sing. So much that even at that early time when hardly anything was known about them, when this guy was trying to figure out what's wrong with these people, the first thing he mentions is they sing. And notice, they sing about Christ. They sing to Christ, addressing him as if, not as if, as true God, just as we still do today. So this is a fantastic thing. If you want to look it up and read the whole letter, it's uh, in uh, book 10 and it's letter 96. And the response comes right after in, from Trajan. So we see how important it is. Christians are already getting in trouble because they sing and because they sing so clearly about Jesus Christ and to him that even the pagans who don't get what's going on understand that this is important. And I think we'll get back to this little secum in weekem thing that, they're singing back and forth to each other. That's fantastic. Okay, uh, so back to Colossians chapter 3. We have this interesting phrase from Paul that we are to teach and to admonish one another uh, uh, so that the word of Christ, uh, that is, en hologos tu Christu, enoiketo, that is this dwelling word, en humen, as we said, can mean either in you, as in, in, in your hearts by faith, or among y'all, uh, am among us, um, plusius, uh, that is, richly, and uh, teaching and admonishing one, one another, psalmois, humnas, hodais, numatais, psalms, hymns, and songs, spiritual ones is how we translate that. And this is very interesting because he uses these three words, which invites the question, are these different things or are these just a whole bunch of words for the exact same thing, right? So let's look at these words in uh, a little bit in detail. Psalms, that one seems pretty easy because that one's in the Old Testament too. The Psalms uh, is the name of the book uh, that's full of those 150 prayers and hymns meant to be sung. Sometimes we even have the instrumental uh, descriptions in the titles uh, that are in the Bible. And we expect the early church to be singing psalms. In particular, uh, you can look this up later, go to Acts chapter 4, and you find not only that the apostles, Paul and Silas, who are in, or Peter and Silas, who are sorry, Peter and Barnabas, who are imprisoned, uh, sing to one another while they're in prison. But as soon as they get out of prison, this is where the Jews tell them, all right, we'll let you go, but really stop talking about Jesus. And they say, well, we, we have to. How can we but speak and sing of what, we, of what we've seen? Uh, when they get out, they offer this great prayer 
Uh, and this prayer is in perfect collect form. We might say that the collect form comes from this prayer in the Bible. Uh, and their rationale, their reason for praying, the thing that they start with is that the, the Lord had already prophesied this very thing happening, that the kings and the nations would rage against the Lord and against his Christ. And that's a direct quote from Psalm 2. So we know they were using the Psalms in early in the early church worship. Uh, so Psalms probably means exactly what it sounds like. Now, these hymns, what are these? Hymns is a Greek word uh, that was common among the pagans. And the hymns were eulogizing songs, saying good words, blessings about the gods uh, and the goddesses too. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek thing. They would have been very familiar with this. They were often poetic, sometimes using the various meters uh, that you guys are probably quite familiar with from the Greek and Latin poets. But it's interesting that this is the word that gets used uh, also for some kind of Christian song. The last one is odes. Uh, Hodai sounds very similar to odes in English. And uh, these are a very general word for song uh, that would include uh, both Latin and Jewish, or sorry, Greek and Jewish uh, types of songs. But Paul adds the word pneumatis, that is, uh, that they are spiritual songs or songs of the spirit. And I think that's very important to see. When we hear the word spiritual, it's, it's easy for us to think evanescent, right? Uh, floating around in the air, ghostly, uh, not in the sense of spooky, but in the sense of vapor, right? That's the mist that comes out of your dehumidifier. That's not the way we as Christians should see the word spiritual whenever it comes up in the Bible. We should recognize it first and foremost of the capital S, Holy Spirit, relating to him. Uh, perhaps relating to our spirits, Paul's saying, in y'all, so that's very possible, but especially that it's God's Holy Spirit, who works always through the Word of God, who, who, who never comes apart from the Word of God, and therefore, uh, we have to remember, the Holy Spirit's greatest work in the church, the one that is still standing the test of time, the place where we go to be sure and certain that God is dealing with us, is in the external word of the Holy Scriptures. This is the bestseller that the Holy Spirit has inspired. Uh, it's breathed out by God. Uh, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, many people throughout the ages have called spiritual songs uh, that first thing, the gaseous ones, the ones that kind of float away, that are here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, but I think there's much more reason to call these uh, the songs that the Spirit inspires. Okay, so psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, what can we say about these? And can we put a precise label on them? I'm going to say no. I don't think we can. Most of the scholars are agreed also. It's pretty hard to try and parse these out as specific categories. Nevertheless, I'm going to be a little bold today to try and give us some specific categories. Psalms is easy. We still have hymns that we sing, and they come in a few forms. And then we have the spiritual songs one uh, that is maybe the, the most puzzling. But drawing on what we had said, what we know about the Holy Spirit, that he inspires the word of God, that he speaks this, that he sees that the prophets are speaking this sure word of God, that he uh, is with the apostles so that they are writing the scriptures faithfully, uh, that he's falling upon everybody in Acts whenever the apostles and the other ministers come and speak the word of God to them. We should look for where the Holy Spirit is inspiring uh, songs in the Bible. And we have this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to look in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but Luke chapters 1 and 2 is so important to us as Christians, especially as singers, because we have clear songs in the New Testament. We know of many psalms, 150 of them in the Old Testament. We've got the canticles that we don't remember as much from Moses most of the prophets are actually written in the form of songs, and we have no idea if they were sung or not, but it seems likely that they were. Some of the sections even show up as songs quite clearly. We have the exact same thing in the New Testament. And we call these still the canticles from the Latin word cantilenus, 
little songs, right? Um, the first one that we have in the New Testament is the Magnificat, which starts in Luke 1, 46. But we have to look just a little before that to see where the Holy Spirit is, right? Look at this. In, uh, in verse 35 of Luke chapter 1, you know the story well. The angel Gabriel comes from heaven, talks to uh, St. Mary, and she says, How can this be since I'm a virgin? I have no husband. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you. It's a dwelling word, just like the word we have in Colossians, that the Holy Spirit is present with Mary in the same way, in fact, that he was present in the temple in the Jewish era. So we see that even though the angel departs or the Holy Spirit is with her, uh, Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit, not without words, but when Mary comes and greets her, uh, in the visitation. John the Baptist, of course, is already signaling that he is the forerunner of Christ. He's leaping in the womb of Elizabeth, a great testimony to uh, life in the womb already here. And uh, then after Elizabeth speaks by the Spirit and said, this is the mother of my Lord, Mary speaks. And there's no reason that we shouldn't see that the Holy Spirit is the one inspiring this song, since he has been now come to overshadow her and dwell with her so that the Christ can be conceived in her. And she sings, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. I hope you know that canticle well. Moving on then, later in Luke 1, when Zechariah finally has his tongue untied because he didn't believe the angel that he and his wife Elizabeth could have a baby at such an old age after they had been barren for so many years, what is the first thing he does? Not speak, but sing. And sing a song that is uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying that isn't just a connecting and that's a result uh, because he is filled with the holy spirit he speaks he sings he sings the great hymn benedictus and this one is wonderful for pointing out that that the what pliny noticed and what paul commanded that, that christ is to be preeminent in our song because this song, which seems to be explaining why John is the name of this new child, instead of being named Zechariah II after his old man, it's a song that's all about Christ. Even in the middle section, where he starts to talk about John, you, my child, will be the prophet of the Most High, pretty soon he's back talking about Jesus, right? He's the one who's going to come. Uh, you're going to proclaim the salvation that's in him, the day spring from on high who has visited us, who brings uh, salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Okay? The last song, well, there is a little song in between, Glory to God in the Highest, which the church has expanded upon. But but the last song is one you're getting ready to sing, I'm sure, on the 2nd of February, that's next Wednesday, the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And this is the song of Simeon. It's one we also know because we sing it either at Compline, the last service before bedtime, or we sing it often at the end of Holy Communion in the divine service. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And notice again, we have that signal, don't we? In Luke chapter 2, verse, uh, let's see. Well, the whole story begins at 22, but the important verse we're looking at is 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, a man who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit, of course, revealed that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. But that means that this song, as well as his entrance in the temple to see Jesus, is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right? I, I'm using this as a reason to say we don't know exactly what these are, but it's a good, uh, it's a great, uh, at least teaching uh, distinction to say, I think we should consider these spiritual songs the canticles. All right. Any question on that biblical foundation and bringing Pliny into this too? Seeing none, we shall continue. All right. Um, 
What is so important and why this phrase matters for us, especially if we're going to understand these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as psalms, uh, hymns, perhaps poems, we want to say, uh, extra biblical words that are reflecting uh, the words of the scriptures, and the songs that are specifically inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we're going to call these New Testament canticles. These three elements are really the foundation of the daily office, that is, matins and vespers, the non-communion services of the church, which were not intended to replace Holy Communion, not that, you know, if you didn't want to have Holy Communion, I guess you're free not to, so we won't do that on Sunday. Instead, we'll sing matins, or if it's nighttime, vespers. But they come out of the church's desire to be praying the Lord's words at all times. Again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 8, uh, whoever, uh, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and it will set you free. The daily office has its origin, excuse me, why do we want to talk about the daily office? We want to talk about the daily office so we can finally get to Lutheran Schools Week, so we can remember that this really in the Reformation became the first and foremost property of the students, of the scholars, that it was the duty of the children to sing these songs. In fact, in that time when we were trying to restore the gospel to the song of the church, it was so that the adults could learn from the children. In our time, we may still need that, uh, but at the very least, we want to have our children singing the word of Christ. So, a little history on the daily office. The daily office has its origins in the early church already. Uh, there were definitely, even in Jewish times, times of day set aside for hearing the word of God. We also know that in the synagogues, the synagogues are different than the temple. The temple's in one place, Jerusalem. You can see all throughout the Old Testament in Kings and Chronicles how other places pop up for worship, and the Lord wants to shut them down. That's Josiah's great work to tear down the high places, Hezekiah as well, uh, and so that the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem is the place where we go to worship, if you're an Old Testament Jew. Uh, Christ, when he meets with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, right, uh, who asked the question, are we supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim like all the Samaritans do, one of those high places? Jesus says, it's going to be something different now. Now, the Lord is looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. And again, spirit doesn't mean floating around with no consistency, uh, vapor, but spirit means where the Holy Spirit is inspiring it. That is where the word of Christ is dwelling richly among the Christians, not in just one place of the world, but wherever that word is being preached and heard and sung. So, uh, the origins of the daily office come out of that. It especially comes out of a couple Bible passages from the Psalms. If you're singing the Psalms, you're going to run into Psalm 55, verse 17, that says something like this, Evening, morning, and at noon, I will praise you, O Lord. Or in Psalm 119, which is so uh, rich and long about God's word, it says at 62, I will rise at midnight and praise you. It says also in verse 164, seven times a day will I praise you and give thanks to you, O Lord. So these psalms give rise to the idea that perhaps we should set aside certain parts of the day to pray in our freedom as Christians. And since there was a number in the Bible, why not use that one seven times? That gives rise to these uh, times of prayer that would be kept by somebody in the church, if not everybody. Uh, and originally, these were sung in the large churches so that all Christians were involved. Over time, as monasteries popped up, that is, originally places where the church centers of activity for the church, but soon kind of the exclusive place where the prayer of the church happened, sadly, not allowing the people to join in. That was the place where the daily office really took off. And we ended up with these hours, uh, matins, which means morning, or vigils, it was sometimes called, because it really wasn't in the morning at all. It was at midnight, I will rise and praise you, or at two in the morning, they would gather. And that was the longest service, if you can believe it, uh, maybe a remnant of when people used to uh, actually sleep for two periods in the night. 
In the morning, lauds. Laud means praise uh, at about 5 a.m. At 6 a.m., prime. You know that means number one. Uh, that's at the sixth hour. Uh, at the ninth hour, nine, uh, nine o'clock, terce. Uh, at noon, sext. Uh, at uh, three o'clock, non. At six o'clock, vespers, which means evening. And then uh, in the evening, compline before bedtime. You may be familiar with at least some of those because we still have them in our hymnal, which is great. Uh, and Benedict of Nursia is worth mentioning. He lived uh, in the turn of the 6th century AD, and he's kind of the founder of monasticism, or at least we remember him in this way. He set out the clear orders and rules for the monks as they would live together. And again, while we can't go into all of it, I want us to be a little more favorable to the monks uh, because the original intention of these, uh, this is our conviction as Lutherans, was by no means to sequester our praying and hearing of the Bible and knowing of the Bible to just a few group of men, but it was in fact to preserve it uh, and to have a center from which mission work would go out. We see this especially in Ireland and other places. It's only over time that they become corrupted and inward focused so that they are really just guys who live a very cushy life doing nothing but praying and eating all the time and don't have any concern for the rest of the Christians. Uh, nevertheless, that's exactly what comes to be. Uh, and at the time of the Reformation, that's a real question. What do we do with all these monasteries? What do we do with all these orders? People who from a very young age, even younger than you, have been compelled into a life of celibacy, not knowing if they're fit for that life, who compelled to live a life away from their families, and who aren't really, in many cases, benefiting the rest of the Christian community. Well, it was determined to restore them as what they are, centers of the mission of the church, places of learning and singing and praising that aren't inwardly focused, but that are for the benefit of the whole church. And so when the Lutheran Reformation comes along, the vast majority of the monasteries are turned into schools, or their funds and their lands are put toward the benefit of schools. And you've probably learned before uh, about what the Reformation has done for schools. We know what Luther has said, uh, that we need to have Christian schools, that he wants it both for men and for women, uh, and that they're valuable for training us for service in the church and in the world and in the home as well. Um, in addition to that, we know that Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's protege, who wrote the Augsburg Confession, our chief confession of faith, who uh, really was less interested in theology and never, in fact, became ordained as a minister, what his primary interest was, was the school. He's remembered in Germany not as a great reformer so much as he's remembered as the reformer of the schools, the preceptor, the, the chief teacher of Germany. And um, the schools then don't lose the daily office when they become not monasteries, but schools. They simply redirect it so that the daily office becomes the property, not of the pastors, so much as of the students, the scholars at these schools, many of which had already been in existence for a long time, connected with cathedral churches, connected with uh, local areas, but also that they were being reformed or created so that the monasteries became schools. And the daily office undergoes some revision and purification. Uh, mostly, it becomes simpler. Luther complains a lot about the daily office because he was a monk and he had to do it every single day. He had to do the full thing. He had to recite the whole Psalter multiple times a week, but at very least, he'd hit every psalm at least once during the course of the week. I've tabulated it out, and I think it would take at least three hours a day to pray through the daily office as Luther would have known it. Um, frankly, that wouldn't be so bad. And Luther wasn't against the prayers. We see how much he benefited from praying daily. Uh, but uh, to make this an obligation, uh, as if this were a good work of God to put in a certain amount of time in a certain way, as opposed to the good work being what God does in us by letting his word of Christ dwell richly in us. That's what Luther's trying to change. 
but by no means is our church interested in throwing out what has come before. And I think you'll see that as a continuing theme. So what does the daily office become in the Reformation? It becomes matins and vespers, and it becomes part of the school day above all. Those early morning ones, lauds in the early morning and vigils or matins proper, that night service, those become the morning service. If you're familiar with Lutheran service book, our hymnal right now, or the Lutheran hymnal uh, from 1941, you're familiar with matins. Our matins is kind of a hodgepodge of true matins, sometimes called vigils, and lauds. The thing you can tell that's mixed them up is we've got that option to sing the Tadeum or the Benedictus. The Benedictus belongs to lauds. The Tadeum belongs to matins. So we mush them together as, a, as an option, or I suppose you could sing both if you'd like. In the same way, Vespers sometimes gets mashed together with Compline, which we have both services in our hymnal now, which is fantastic. But Matins or Vespers focuses on singing the Magnificat. And both of these services, whether morning or evening, are primarily about the Psalms and a chance to sing, as well as a chance to hear the reading from the Scriptures. Uh, now, this happened uh, in a very orderly way on Sundays and big important days like Christmas. And that is the night before a great service, Saturday night of most weeks, there would always be a Vespers service. And everybody from the town would come, at least as many people that were able to. First Vespers, we called it. Makes sense. In the morning, you would have matins, and everybody who could come would join for that. Then you'd have the divine service, Sunday morning at the usual time, or if it was a special day, we'd have a special service. And in the afternoon, you'd still have Vespers again. We call that second Vespers. And uh, so you notice you have the divine service at the center with Holy Communion, and then you have these other services of prayer surrounding them. That's great. And if you were the average peasant in a town, you'd recognize this as the way Lutherans do church, that it's kind of a four-service event whenever it's an important day or a Sunday. But in addition to this, in addition to this, we've got the school life. Not only do we get church orders for how do you turn your uh, church and reform it so it's a pure church, uh, preaching as Luther has taught us to, to preach from the scriptures, you also get school orders by uh, Pastor Bugenhagen, Pastor uh, Regius up north, uh, Pastor Chemnitz, who you might know from the, from the uh, Book of Concord. Um, these pastors are reforming the schools and working with the teachers they have also to reform the schools just as much as the churches. And matins and vespers have become the mainstay. I don't know what your chapel schedule is, uh, whether it's at your home or your church or together here somehow with Wittenberg Academy, but um, the old pattern was not once a week, but once a day. In fact, not once a day, but twice a day, this morning service and this afternoon service. There'd usually be a middle of the day song, at least, certainly around the, the dinner table, but also choir rehearsal right after lunch so you don't fall asleep. Uh, so, so I think that's a good introduction to what it looks like. I want to talk briefly about the structure of these services. We know them pretty well if we're familiar with Matins and Vespers. Uh, but here's the general structure. You might have the opening versicles. It's unclear whether they would get rid of them. And the books, half of them have them, half of them don't. Probably because you know them so well, right? Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We know this by heart. They did too. Then we'd sing some psalms, one or two or three. That's a little bit uh, lessened from the five that you might normally have in the Middle Ages. But there's already our first category, right? The psalms from the 150 psalms. You have a scripture, and I haven't included these, but this is the way that the church always, whether in the Middle Ages or after the Reformation, treated the Bible not that it would be whispered, not that it would be read silently out of our books, but that it would be sung. Now, I don't think there are many churches today that do this, but it was very common in those days that instead of just speaking the words of the epistle or the gospel reading or the reading of the matins, 
you would sing it. They had all these tones for singing it, uh, very clear. And Luther cared a lot about this. He wanted the gospel uh, to be sung to a certain tone. He wanted the words of institution, which you might be familiar with being sung in church. He wanted those to be sung to the same tune as the gospel. So everybody would, you know, just like, I don't know if you watch Star Wars, right? Uh, in the new Star Wars thing that come out, uh, the last episode of the previous week played some music that some people recognize was for a different character. And lo and behold, that character showed up in the next episode, right? So if you're tuned into music, you might have caught that. Uh, Pastor Dodgers, by the way, didn't see that at all. I just want you to know that. He didn't catch it at all. But uh, I caught it, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, the point is so that everybody would recognize that sounds like the gospel. Well, of course, it is the gospel, right? The words of institution are the gospel in tight, compact form, and in fact, even given to us to eat and to drink. So, uh, all to say, the scriptures themselves really belong in here as a song, too. After that comes the hymn, and this we're used to. If it was a day when adults would be around, we'd sing it in German, if uh, that is English for us, right? If uh, the adults weren't around, they'd sing some of the old Latin hymns because all the boys and girls uh, would be singing in Latin. After that comes the canticle, an evening magnificat, in the morning, benedictus, or maybe the tedeum, and in the late evening, uh, the nunc dimittis. So those New Testament canticles. Then you have the prayers, just as we're used to, the benedicamus, sometimes a hymn at the end. But what I want us to see about this structure, not only that it has all of these rich songs of the church, that it has the Psalms from the Old Testament, that it has the canticles from the New Testament, and that it has also the church's songs and poems set to music from throughout the ages. I want you to see that it is the children's responsibility. Uh, we don't want monks anymore. We don't want people who are going to be useless to the world who just sit around eating and drinking and praying by themselves to walls. We want Christians that are going to be of benefit to the whole church throughout their life. And that's the vision that Lutherans have for schools, that we're raising up young Christians who are already Christians now, who know how to pray, who are daily growing in the Word of God, who are going to be useful to the whole world once they get older, as mothers, as uh, workers uh, for the sake of their children in the home, as servants in the church. If you're a, a, a young boy, that perhaps you would grow up to be a pastor in the church, or as other servants in the church, that you would be a musician, a cantor in the church, uh, and that you might serve in the uh, republic, that you might serve uh, the state and the government uh, for the well-being of our life together uh, in town and in territory and in country. So, um, what's interesting is we are very concerned, for example, that pastors be the one to read the Word of God in church, and that's a wise thing to do. But in the schools, the boys, that is the school children, were the one to read it. Now, that seems a little strange, but there's two reasons for it. One, they are learning all the time how to read, especially in Latin. So, they're also learning how to sing in Latin as well as in German. So they are capable and well-trained to do this. They're not just stumbling up there, but in fact, they're trained, and each of them takes their turn. Just as these offices are still allowed to be uh, led by fathers in the home, uh, even by children, they're for all Christians to use because they don't have the Lord's Supper or, and maybe sometimes don't even have preaching involved. Uh, but these boys are doing that, and it's also training them to grow up to perhaps be a pastor or a cantor in the church, someone who is going to be singing and proclaiming and teaching this word of God to the whole congregation. So, uh, but even if you weren't going to grow up to be a pastor, you would be singing and praying uh, daily, and you would be leading with the clergy, with your teachers, and with your fellow classmates uh, the services each day. And the focus would be on these songs that the word of Christ would dwell richly in us. I'll pause there and ask, see if there are any questions uh, so far, talking about the daily office and then how it is received in morning evening prayer uh, in the Lutheran schools.
There was one question that popped up in the chat box, uh, and you kind of addressed that, but just bringing, bringing this back, um, is there a reason that it says seven times a day? Is there a significance to that seven? We don't know exactly what Jewish prayer was like. Uh, David wrote Psalm 119. We don't know if he had his own pattern or if that was something he decreed as king or if even the priests. Uh, we just don't have any church books from David's time other than the scriptures themselves. Uh, but at the very least, we can say this. The number seven in the Bible is pretty important. I can think of uh, the week, for example, and everything in the Jewish life is ordered around that week, driven home by the fact that on the Sabbath you do no work, right? Uh, seven in, in Revelation is, is this number of divine perfection. Uh, so, so it may just be a casual way of saying uh, the perfect number of times. In, in completion, I am always praising and praying to you, Lord. Um, but but uh, I suppose that's why uh, the monks said, well, why not actually use that number as our guide as we look at how we're going to sing and pray to the Lord? Good question. Anything else? Okay, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of songs, uh, and that's hard to do, uh, and maybe I'll cut some of it out, but I'll say just a few things about what psalm singing, hymn singing, and canticle singing looked like in the Reformation time, uh, as well as today. In the, uh, all throughout the Middle Ages and continuing after the Reformation, so important, continuing after the Reformation, the psalms were always sung to eight tones. So you may be familiar with the little tones that we have uh, numbered by letter in LSB, A, B, C, etc. Um, and those are fine ways to sing the psalms. There are many other tunes that you could sing a psalm to, and maybe if you're in a choir, you're working on fancier multi-part settings of psalms. Fantastic. The, the, the old churches used to sing that way too. But in particular, they had these special tones, one for each of the modes uh, of church music that they would sing. It's kind of like one in each key. We are kind of boring today. We only have two keys, major or minor. They were much more interesting back then. And uh, you can experience this if you just want to play eight notes up on a piano. Start on C, that's one. But start on D and just play the white notes. Start on E and just play those white notes. And listen to how when you move those semitones and full tones, half, note or, uh, half steps and whole steps, how different that little melody sounds just going up the scale. Each one of those eight different tunes is a different mode, a, a different way of singing. And uh, these were very important to them. So there were eight different tones. There was also a bonus tone, the ninth tone, the wandering tone, which is very much like the ones we have because the reciting tone, the place where you stick most of the, of the words, that would change. In fact, all of our tones in LSB change. They're all wandering away. Uh, so what, uh, in other words, this was a longstanding practice for centuries of tunes being used. And the value of this wasn't that they became really boring because everybody, you know, we're always singing the same eight notes. No, what, what made it delightful is it gave the opportunity to bring variation and consistency in what we sing. First of all, what's more important when we're singing God's word? Is it really about the notes or is it about his word? Paul says it, right? Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you through these songs. So the psalms were sung in such a way that the words drove the train. They were in charge of everything. You would change your pitch, in fact, based on the way the words went, not based on how you thought it sounded pretty. Um, but it was very beautiful because it was very consistent. And, you know, because children are so inventive, uh, they got so good at this that they could sing parts without even any music. They would just make up other parts along with it, descants, something below, high above, something below. They would even improvise canons. you got to look up Peter Schubert if you uh, have ability to search on the web. There's some fantastic videos of, of how they would improvise canons. That is, they would sing around spontaneously based on these tones because they were so fluent in this. Boys as young as eight years old knew how to do this so well. So much so that when you got older, 
someone like Michael Pretorius, who became one of the greatest cantors of the Lutheran Church, who published giant, multi-volume sets of music, not just for one or two parts, but for 12-part choir, 16-part choir, uh, entirely composed of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the canticles of the church. Uh, he remembered when he was a little boy. In fact, I have a copy of the book that he sang out of, this little psalmodia, hoc est cantica sacra, that is psalmody, or sacred songs of the old church. This was his little book when he was a boy, and he says, I remember that book. I loved it so much. I think I'm going to try and set all of it to four-part harmony. He never quite got it done, but he got a lot, big chunk of it done. Right, so these psalms are 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 just the way of life, as I'm sure it is for you with the Lutheran service book tones. The hymns, hymns have a sketchy history in the church. Uh, originally, nobody wanted to sing anything but the Bible, and I can't really fault them for that. Uh, so everything in the church was supposed to be directly from the scriptures. There were to be no psalmi idiotici, which doesn't mean idiot psalms. It means psalms that were private, written by written just for my own use, right? You're an idiot if you did that, they said. Uh, and we don't want you uh, to bring those into the church, not at least at the divine service. But uh, things changed a little bit, especially when the heretics started doing that. Arius started, uh, was the first hymn writer in many ways, except his hymns were singing all the false things about God. And Ambrose uh, became then the great first hymn writer of the church, or he's remembered this way in the fourth century, just up to the end of it, um, because he wrote some of the first Latin hymns that were poems, they were in meter, uh, and they would be sung by the church. His hymns in particular became the hymns connected with the daily office, and there were others that followed him. You can find some of his hymns still in our hymnal, in particular, Savior of the Nations Come, written by St. Ambrose originally, and then gone through a few translations in between. But as the church went on, the 9th century, the 11th century, the 13th century, many more poems, that is, based on the Bible, but not strictly the words of the Bible, uh, were written, were brought into the church, even brought into the divine service, which is about the last place that non-Bible verse hymns were brought in. But this means that by the time the Reformation comes around, when Luther is writing hymns in the natural language, German, we would say English today, uh, people were already used to singing hymns. In fact, even the people were used to trying to sing along in church if they were allowed. Uh, but Luther expanded it. And he expanded it by taking all the things that we had in Latin from the previous and letting them go on. As long as they were contrary to the Bible, they continued. That's most of what is in this book uh, by uh, that Pretorius liked so much and sang as a boy, is psalms and Latin hymns from the old time. To that were added all of the Lutheran chorales in German, which we still sing to this day in English. Things by Luther, like A Mighty Fortress, Savior, or, uh, Savior of the Nations Come, his adaptation of an old Ambrose hymn, or uh, Dear Christians, one and all rejoice. And also by his friends, uh, uh, salvation unto us has come. Once he came in blessing, which we had a wonderful uh, setting of by the choir in chapel here today for Lutheran Schools Week uh, from Emmanuel Perryville, Missouri. Their school came and sang for us. Uh, and then all the way up through the ages, more and more hymns. Uh, but originally, the school children were fixed, were focused on singing in Latin because they had to sing everything and do everything in Latin when they were at school. But fascinating, there's one time we get to break that rule. And the time is when it's time for church and other people are there. Because then it's the duty of the children to sing in German so that everybody can learn those hymns in German. They didn't have hymn books, so they had to learn it by heart. And the children were responsible to teach that to the parents and the other members of the town so that they would know how to sing too. So uh, you see that German and Latin are really both going on in the school life uh, in the Reformation. Uh, it's a bilingual, a bilingual school. The last thing is the canticles. We've talked quite a bit about them, and uh, so I won't uh, belabor it much more, but just to see how frequently they're used. And, uh, and we can add a fourth one to those three biblical canticles. That's the Te Deum, which many of you know uh, from, uh, from Matins. This is one of those 
Psalmi Idiodiki, right? Uh, one of private psalms that was written. Although the tradition is that it came out of Ambrose, probably came a little later than him, uh, but it's a great confession. Like the creeds, uh, yes, not using the strict words from the Bible, but absolutely echoing the teaching of the Bible. And that's what Paul really had in mind when he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, uh, before we wrap up and, and leave any time for other questions, I just want to briefly address the question, okay, great, you've talked about a lot of history, but what about now? Why are we doing these things? Why should we sing? Paul says it. Paul says it very well. He says, Didascontes et kai nutheteo. And these are the two words he says, that wisdom should be taught and instructed, or taught and nutheteo, that is, put in mind. You can hear the noose in there, that's the mind. Um, teaching and admonishing, teaching and putting onto people's minds, right, this rich word of Christ in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's exactly what the Reformers said, too, in the prefaces to all of these wonderful books that they came out with, with old songs and new German hymns, uh, because we want to put it on the minds of people. We want it to dwell richly in them for their entire life. Therefore, when people are young, when they're smarter than us old people, when they're inquisitive and excited, that's when we want to give them the good stuff so that they'll remember it their entire life. St. Augustine, already in his age, he was a student of Ambrose, so he probably sang some of his hymns. He's known for this uh, simple version of it, qui bene cantat bis orat, that means who sings well, praise twice. Uh, the real quote is, quienum cantat laudem, non solum laudat, sed etiam hilarite laudat, qui cantat laudem, non solum cantat, sed etiam amat eum quem cantat. That is, the one uh, who sings praise, not only praises, but does it joyfully, and the one who sings praise not only sings, but also loves the one about whom he sings, that is Christ our Lord. Um, so the point here that he's making is this form of prayer, this form of speaking to each other, engages more than just the mouth, engages more than just the eyes on the page, engages more than just the mind even into which these, these uh, uh, words are being put, but engages the whole person. We would say in scientific terms today, both sides of the brain are at work in music. Uh, that's why it's, it, 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 it engages your whole body. It engages all parts of your person. It engages your breath, right? Uh, very visibly that the spirit is at work in this. Um, and, and also that it slows us down and engages us with time so that these things become valuable. It, it's counterintuitive maybe, but the effort that is spent on singing, which obviously is a little more difficult than just reading, because you have to think about the pitch of your reading. But that is such a benefit to us, both in memory, that we remember what we've done, and in joy, that it's not just something that was simple and easy, but something we worked at just a tiny bit, so that it's something that we come to love, because we've invested time in it. Uh, the, the, the goal of our church schools is to invest our time in what will last forever, in the words of God that will never pass away. Lastly, I want to say another thing looking to the future. Uh, that's what our reforming fathers did. They wanted to look to the future. They weren't worried about just treating kids as kids now. I guess you could just toss them in a room and ignore them that way. They wanted to raise these children up for the benefit of the future. Uh, they thought they ought to be taught, as your motto still says. And they wanted them to be useful, by which I don't mean cogs uh, that can just get plugged in anywhere, but of benefit to each other because they themselves uh, have been enriched in the family and in the home and in the life of the political sphere too. And there's a time coming, by the way, I think, I hope I'm wrong, but there very well could be a time coming when we wouldn't have organs and we wouldn't have 
recordings, which are so easy to listen to. We might not have YouTube. We might have to find something else to get our Wittenberg Academy going. We might not have any of these things. We might not have money to do it. We might not have the freedom to do it even. If that were to happen, would we still be able to gather as Christians? Would we still be able to keep God's word heard? The answer is yes, if we're singing. If we've got these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, if all we could do was sing them with just our voices, we actually would be fine. I'm an organist, so I don't really want to get rid of the organ. Uh, but if we had our voices, if we could sing these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we'd had everything we needed. And we could survive until a time when we could build great churches again. We could build great organs and all of this. The other reason is, if we want to turn things around, if we want the word of Christ to be the thing that's preeminent instead of all the things that seem to be distracting us today, then we need to engage our whole body. We need to engage our whole history and heritage. And we need to let these things, um, we need to be grateful for what we've received, but we also have the great opportunity to sing it in our day. And uh, the exciting thing is I've never found children who aren't excited to be doing something that matters as opposed to just something that'll take up their time. That's the way Lutherans think about the Bible and Lutherans think about worship. This is something that matters. This is something that's valuable both now, but also, I mean, for the rest of our lives and even into eternity. And that's why we think it's so important that even children, no matter how young we are, no matter how inductive you might be so far, uh, you're worth hearing and singing, participating, perhaps even in this way, leading, uh, so that the word of Christ, Christ not only dwells in you, but dwells in our whole community together. So I want to encourage you in that, uh, and I hope this was helpful uh, to see just how important uh, singing in the church is, so the word of God dwells richly in us, but also to see how important scholars and children are to the singing of the church. Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Denzer. Why did we use the word hymn if it is used to sing to other gods? Was there just no other word to describe, it, to describe singing to God? Great question. It's a good question. I mean, I think, look, as the church has, has grown over time, we've become the rightful heirs of this uh, pagan culture. You know, they did the best they could with nothing but the law, which is all you have if you don't have the word of God. You can figure out an awful lot uh, from, from the way the world works, but you'll never figure out the gospel. So they never had that. We don't have to pretend they did. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, even the law will tell you you were created. Uh, you ought to give some kind of gratitude to whoever created you. Uh, they're not wrong in that. They just don't know what pleases God. That is a clean conscience in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. So, so I think that's why they weren't afraid to say, really, they didn't know what they were saying. That hymn word probably belongs to us, and we're not going to be afraid to use it. Um, but, but again, even Pliny uh, understood the difference between their hymns, their odes, and and. and and what uh, he would have been used to singing or hearing himself in the pagan temples, right? Who in the world, I mean, he even says that, right? Christo quasi Deo, uh, to Christ as if, quasi, right? As if to a God, isn't that ridiculous? And we say, no, as God, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing strange about that. And the church has done this with many other things, right? Ecclesia is the Greek word not for uh, temple, that would make more sense, I suppose, but it's just for, you know, a gathering, conclude any political gathering, any any school board meeting would be an ecclesia, right? Uh, well, well, ours is a gathering that matters. What matters most in what we do is not the thing itself, but it's who's gathering us, right? Who are we addressing in our songs? Whose word is dwelling richly in them, right? And that's why we're free to take, you know, this inheritance and, and you know, put some spirit into this body uh, that is the Christian teaching. Just curious when that um, the daily chapel and and services fell out of regular use in our schools. Was it when we came to America or when we switched over to English or or when that kind of occurred? I think in some ways it fell out well before um, we, you know, the, the kind of like Saxon, Missouri Synod or especially American Lutheran Church came into being. Um, in the Enlightenment, these things really fell by the wayside. Um, uh, so many people said, you know, 
the purpose the purpose of singing is to emphasize nature. We don't believe in in miracles. We don't believe the scriptures are true testimony. And they certainly were gonna they were gonna abandon the idea that we ought to have children singing all these songs that are packed full of God's word, doctrine, scripture. That's old and unnecessary. We don't believe that, uh, but they did. So th- that's why the the school. You know, we see this today. Singing itself is not important to the world around us. They, they don't have any value in it. They're, it's almost gotten to the point where the only place you'll hear people singing is maybe a baseball game, but not really very much. That's why we have that solo person up front to do the singing for us. The only place you find people singing in groups is church at this point, I think. I don't mind that. I mean, I wish everybody were singing all the time, but if they're not going to sing great words, what's the point? I think we should lean into and not be too ashamed that we're the only ones who are singing anymore. Let's just make sure that we keep doing it. We have this command from St. Paul, uh, but we have something that's worth singing about with Christ Jesus. Uh, Again, not to lose your question about the history, I think the daily chapel, certainly the rich daily chapel that I've described from the time of Luther and, and the couple generations after him, it's hard to keep that going during the Thirty Years' War when when your schools evacuated for plague. I think we know something about that. Uh, when your um, when your schools evacuated because the whole town was destroyed by an incoming army, right? So things were hard to keep going during that time. But then it's also hard when after that war people reject God and nobody wants to do it. Coming into America, I think we did have a stronger. Uh, uh, pattern of daily chapel uh, in earlier times, especially when uh, we were still using German, we were close to our sources uh, from the past. But when we lost touch of those, when we wanted to become more American, singing's going to go out, having church in school, right? Letting the Psalms and the Word of God be such an important part that we would take not just one, but two times a day to be having this really shape the whole day, that falls away. So uh, when I was a child at Lutheran school, we had chapel only once a week, and uh, we did get to sing. I do remember that. I remember that's one of the things I remember most from uh, grade school chapel is Irv Oftenberg, uh, our male cantor, uh, who sang and showed us every day that that singing is a very manly thing, uh, and he loved it. He was so passionate about it. And if it weren't for him, I don't think I would be singing to this day. Yeah, that's a a great thing that is always worth uh, speaking again, is that men sing, right? And uh, so you you men uh, here uh, and those of you who have uh, younger siblings, uh, remind them that men sing. This is is good. Um, Even if you don't hit all the notes uh, perfectly, still sing. It's it's a it's a good thing. And no, no offense, ladies, but you weren't even allowed to sing for a long time. It was all boys, all men and boys, especially in Luther's and Pretorius's day, even up through Bach's day. Very few women were allowed to sing in church. Now, I think it's good that women are able to sing in church. Certainly, they got to sing the hymns, but uh, it was a man's thing. It still should be at least a man's thing, and women can join us too. Absolutely. All right, men, there's your challenge. Recover, recover this. This is a good thing. Pastor Denzer, thank you so much. Uh, It has been a wonderful time. Uh, The wealth of knowledge that you shared with us, the challenge that you uh, extended to us in in so many ways. Thank you for uh, blessing the church with all your work. And uh, we'll look forward to another conversation down the road. Pleasure. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you and keep singing, friends. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.